Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Today, we're doing something new. This podcast marks the first episode of a class called The Historical Jesus, What the Bible Says About the Life of Christ. In this 16-lecture class, I seek to answer the question, Who is Jesus? Join me as we journey through the Gospels and see what the Bible says about Jesus' life. It is my hope that this class will inspire you to love Jesus, teach you to follow Jesus, help you to understand Jesus, and empower you to navigate the Gospels on your own. Throughout, I seek to situate Jesus within his own historical context to enable you to see him as clearly as possible. If you prefer to watch a video of this class, or if you want to download the course notes, visit restitutio.org. Though I think you'll be able to follow along just fine without the visual aids. Historical Jesus 1. Sources for Jesus' Life How do we know what we know about the life of Jesus? Join me as I cover the non-Christian sources that mention Jesus, including Josephus, Pliny, and Tacitus. Then, we'll look at the reasons why the four biblical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are such good and credible sources for information about Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is, in one sense, obscure. He lived thousands of years ago. He was not a philosopher. He did not rule a kingdom. He did not lead a military. He never wrote a single thing down. He grew up in a tiny village in a backwater province called Galilee in the Roman Empire. He was a poor working class peasant. He had no formal education. He didn't even study under a famous rabbi. He spent most of his time preaching in the countryside, not in the city. And in the end, the government executed him for sedition. However, at this very time, one-third of the people on the planet believe in Jesus. That's 2.2 billion people in the world. In America, 71% self-identify as Christian. His life and his teachings have massively influenced civilization. You have the famous golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The Lord's Prayer, starting with Our Father. You have a city set on a hill, or the phrase, you are the salt of the earth. All of these different hooks in the culture of our present day. And one of the interesting things about Jesus is that even people that don't believe in him still like him. And so this is a quote from Mahatma Gandhi. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. This is from H.G. Wells, the famous novelist. I am an historian. I am not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. Albert Einstein said, I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrase mongers, however artful. 
No man can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Theseus and other heroes of this type lack the authentic vitality of Jesus. And Jesus himself offers forgiveness from sins, a meaningful way of life, and in the end, eternal life. So Jesus is a big deal. And part of what we want to understand is why is Jesus so influential by looking at his life and by looking at how he lived. And so I have three objectives for this class. The first is to help you understand Jesus. The second is to teach you to follow Jesus. And the third is to inspire you to love Jesus. And I think between all three of those, we'll get a, a good flavor. I don't have time to cover every thing Jesus ever said or ever did. We're, we're going to be cruising through, but hopefully you'll get a good flavor for everything. How do we know about Jesus' life? Well, how does anyone know? You could ask your friends. You can do an internet search. You can watch movies about Jesus. You can read books about Jesus. The bookstores are full of books about Jesus. But I think we should prefer ancient sources because Jesus is somebody from an ancient time. And so I want to look at with you some non-Christian sources that speak about Jesus and then look at the Gospels, which are going to be our primary sources for information. This right here, I want to look at three different writers. The first is Flavius Josephus, who wrote in the year 93. He was a Jewish historian. He was not a follower of Christ. He's here speaking about James, the brother of Jesus. He says, Festus was now dead and Albinus was but upon the road. So he assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James, and some others. And so in this little snippet, Josephus is talking about James, but he just casually mentions, yeah, he's the brother of Jesus who was called the Christ. Another statement by Josephus, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, for he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him, and the tribe of the Christians, so-called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. So this is the witness of a non-Christian a non talking about Jesus from the same century, and you can see that there are certain key elements that are recognized about Jesus. One, that he is a worker of surprising feats, probably a reference to his miracles. The other is that he's a teacher. In Judaism, a teacher is a rabbi. Uh, people like Jesus, follow Jesus. Pilate ended up crucifying Jesus. And even after he was crucified, he still had followers that didn't give up on him. So that's a, that's a big amount of information that you're getting from a totally non-Christian source. And then you have Pliny the Younger, the second source, the governor of Bithynia in the year 111. And he is writing to the Roman emperor Trajan. And he's got these Christians in his area, and he doesn't know what to do with them. And so he asks, he asks what to do with the Christians. Meanwhile, in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, I have observed the following procedure. I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, 
I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserved to be punished. There were others possessed of the same folly, but because they were Roman citizens, I signed an order for them to be transferred to Rome. So you have a Roman governor's impression of early Christianity. And so this is from the beginning of the second century. Christianity is already reaching to places like Bithynia and also to Rome. And then here is a third non-Christian witness to Jesus and the Christians. A man named Tacitus, a Roman historian, writing in 115. And he's talking about Nero, the Roman emperor, in the year 64. And he writes, Consequently, to get rid of the report... Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then, upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. And so, what, I, what I'm telling you here is that Jesus is somebody that obviously his own followers, especially the, the ones who wrote the Gospels, knew about. But also, a Roman governor mentions him. A Roman historian mentions him. A Jewish historian mentions him. And there are several others that I, I won't go through with you right now. But these ancient sources testify to the uh, fact that there was a Jesus. Now, I want to take a look at the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I want to hit 11 points with you on why I'm so impressed by the Gospels and why I think they're reliable. The first thing I want to say is that the Gospels are very unusual books. You have to realize that you, know, you might be familiar with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they just might seem so everyday to you, but these books are not normal books. They're written in ancient Koine Greek. I mean, do you have other books that you normally, I mean, outside the Bible that you read translations of ancient Greek of? It's pretty unusual, right? They're really old. The youngest of the Gospels is around 1,900 years old or more. And they've survived century after century after century. There's no digital version of the Gospels for so many centuries, right? Uh, there's no printing press, and paper itself only lasts for a little while before it, it wears out or it rots. And so to get something to survive from ancient times all the way up till today, you need communi communities of dedicated followers to write these things and copy them and preserve them. This is all the more impressive when we realize that there was persecution against Christians, which we just read. We just read about a Roman governor who was persecuting Christians on the authority of the emperor. There was a later emperor named Diocletian who confiscated and burned tons of copies of the Gospels and of the New Testament in the 4th century. Um, so this is... It, it, here's, here's something else to consider about the New Testament. There are all these translations 
into these different languages. Just to give you perspective, the Da Vinci Code is in 44 languages. The Quran, 50 languages. Harry Potter, 68 languages. Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, 174 languages can read that book. This is the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, 462 different languages. And yet the Bible easily beats them all, 554 languages. And if we look at just the New Testament, it's in 1,333 languages. I mean, you've got to say there's something weird going on here, even in our time. One out of every three people believes in Jesus, and it's, it, it's almost embarrassing how many languages <laughs> can read the Bible. Embarrassing in a good way. And now let's take a look at manuscripts. So it's an, the Gospels are unusual books. They're not just like normal books that, you, that somebody would just write, and then you'd be like, oh, that's nice. These are ancient histories, ancient biographies, and they're massively popular and available in different languages. The manuscripts... Um, is a whole other subject. This is a picture of Codex Sinaiticus. It's a manuscript from the year 350, discovered in 1859 by Constantine von Tischendorf, and it contains the entire New Testament. When you want to look at ancient manuscripts, there are two things you want to check on. The first is the number of copies of the ancient manuscript, and the second is the time span between the copy we have, the oldest copy we have, and when it was originally written. The shorter the time span, the more reliable. The more copies you have, the more you can compare to each other and get back to the original. And so these are a list of ancient texts that the New Testament can be compared to, such as Homer. We have 643 copies, different manuscript copies of Homer. Uh, Herodotus, eight copies. Thucydides, eight. Aristotle, five. Plato's Tetralogy is 7, Demosthenes 200, Caesar, I think that's his Gallic Wars, 10 copies, Tacitus, who I mentioned earlier, the Roman historian, 20 copies of his books, and then we get to the New Testament, and it's sort of like embarrassing again, 5,735. This is like playing a football game and winning it 63 to 7. I mean, it's just like destroying the competition here. Um, and then you look at the span between the oldest copy we have and when it was originally written, for, uh, for Homer, we don't have the information, but for Herodotus, it's a 1,325-year span. Thucydides, 1,300 years. Aristotle, 1,485. Plato, 1,247. Demosthenes, 1,422. Caesar, 944. Tacitus, a thousand-year time span. But the New Testament, only 250. Again, incredibly short as far as ancient literature is concerned, between the oldest copy we have and when it was originally written. And this is after a Roman emperor went after the New Testament and tried to destroy it all. But it's better than that. This is P52. P52 stands for Papyrus 52. It's an ancient copy of John chapter 18. It's about the size of a credit card, just a scrap of paper. And it's the oldest part of the Bible, of the New Testament, of the Gospels, on planet Earth yet identified. And they trace it back to within 30 years of when John actually wrote the gospel itself. Uh, and so we have a complete New Testament within 250 years. But even within 30 years, we've got little bits of John chapter 18 and several other asp uh, verses as well. The next point 
on why I think the Gospels are reliable are what I call Aramaisms, both language leakages as well as puns that work in Aramaic. And I think I have some in your notes there, right? So you have these different moments in the Gospels, especially in Mark, where the Gospel will quote the actual words of Jesus rather than translate them. And you find that with these phrases, Talitha kumi, Ephatha, Golgotha, Elioi, Eloi, Lama Sabathani, or they call Peter Kephas in John 142. And so this indicates that the book, although the book itself, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of those books, is written in Greek, they're not making it up in Greek. In other words, they're getting the original language of Jesus right, and, you, and it kind of shines through at different points in the Gospels, indicating that it does go back to an Aramaic-speaking person. And there are also puns that work in Aramaic that don't work in Greek. For example, uh, Jesus says in Matthew 23, 24, you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Well, I don't know if you would ever use that phrase, swallow a camel. It just seems kind of weird. But swallowing a gnat is a galma and a camel is a gamla. And so in Aramaic, these two things would easily be interchanged with each other in a kind of, uh, in, in a pun. Then you have names associated with eyewitnesses. For example, in Mark 15, 21, it says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Why mention Alexander and Rufus? You know, Simon was already identified as not just any Simon, but Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is a, is a faraway place. It's, it's in North Africa, way past Egypt. And so if you have somebody from Cyrene around, you, you don't need to say, well, and his children's names are. You know, it's just a weird way to identify someone anyhow. However, it would make sense if the sons were part of the churches, if the sons were living witnesses, if the sons were people that you could go to at the time of the writing of Mark and say, hey, what happened when your father carried the beam? What was that like? You were there. And so if these are eyewitnesses, then that all makes sense. Uh, Richard Balkum's written a whole book on that. I put in your footnote if you're interested, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And then you also have the lack of motivation to make up the Gospels. I love this one. The Gospels weren't bestsellers in the beginning. No one got rich gain power or fame. Rather, the Gospels caused, as we've already seen, persecution. Nero, the Roman emperor, tortured people who believed in these Gospels. Later emperors tortured and killed Christians for belief in these Gospels. So you have no good motivation just to make it all up, in other words. The next point, six, is unflattering honesty. You have all these different statements in the Gospels that you just wouldn't make up. For example, Jesus' family thought he was crazy. You know, like, if you were just making it up, you wouldn't throw that in there. It's kind of an embarrassing fact. That's in Mark 3.21. Or that Jesus couldn't perform many miracles in Nazareth in Mark 6.5. Or that throughout, the disciples don't understand or believe very well. I mean, if you are a disciple making this up, wouldn't you make the disciples look really good? But look at Peter. He's a disaster, Right? Peter rebukes Jesus at one point, and then Jesus calls him Satan. And then later on, Peter denies he ever even knew Jesus when the going gets tough. 
or even the crucifixion of Jesus itself, a supremely embarrassing fact in the ancient world. Yes, he's the Messiah. The Romans killed him. If you're going to make up a story, it's just not going to be that story. In other words, it makes sense if it's true, and it doesn't otherwise. Then there are a lack of later controversies injected into the Gospels. If you look at uh, later Christian documents, like, for example, 1 Corinthians. There's an there's a, a, a epistle covering a lot of different issues going on in the church of Corinth. And what are the issues they're dealing with? They're dealing with speaking in tongues, uh, the role of women, uh, how do you pray and prophesy, how do you do communion. They're trying to figure out how do, how do we work out Christianity with Jews and Gentiles at the same time working together. If you're just going to make up a gospel later on to bolster your cause, you're going to put the answers to those questions on the lips of Jesus so that he sides with you. However, Jesus never gets into any of these issues. He, it's, 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 he focuses on the issues that are in front of him in his time because it's not made up later on. And then another really good point, number eight here, is archaeological corroboration. I want to show you some archaeological finds, seven archaeological finds. The first one, I mean, this is besides all the different places they found. I mean, you can actually get on a plane tonight, and by tomorrow you can be in Israel, you can go to Jerusalem. It's a real place. It's not a mythical land. You can go to Bethlehem. Some of us in the room have been to these places. And they have coins. You know, they have the shekel. They have the half shekel. They have the lepton, the little tiny coin that the widow put into the treasury. And then they have these other finds. This is in 1941. An ossuary was found in the Kidron area of Jerusalem, and it was inscribed with the words, Alexander the Cyrene, son of Simon. That's the same person that was mentioned in Mark 15, 21. And so this is evidence of his existence. Again, Cyrene is not a typical place where you have a lot of people from getting buried in Jerusalem. And that he, this is Alexander, the son of Simon, again, would um, lend towards the uniqueness of it. The next one is the Pilate Stone. This is found in Caesarea Maritima. It's a dedication to Tiberius by Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. And then we have... In 1968, they found a crucified man with broken legs named Yehohanan buried in a tomb, not in a massive grave, with a spike still in his heel, which must have hit a knot because they couldn't get it out of him and it was bent at the end. Kind of grisly, but it attests to the historicity of the crucifixion described in the Gospels. This is the Galilean fishing boat discovered in 1986. There was a drought on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And since the water level went way down in that year, this ship started coming up. And they pulled it out of the mud and they restored it painstakingly. It ended up being 27 feet by 7.5 feet. And it could fit easily 13 men. I mean, I'm not saying that is the ship Jesus used, okay? But I'm saying that is a ship that is on the Sea of Galilee from the first century, which attests to the validity of the the scenes we see in the Gospels. In 1990, they found the Caiaphas ossuary. Uh, Ossuary is a bone box. It's what they use to bury people. If you have a tomb with a bunch of 
uh, people from your family buried in it, they would separate them out into these different limestone chests that they would put the bones in. Caiaphas, uh, this is Joseph Bar Caiaphas is what it says on it. Um, and he's the high priest who orchestrated Jesus' crucifixion. And Josephus, it says that Joseph, who was also called Caiaphas of the high priesthood. And so this is another example of an ancient person that the Gospels mention that we have their tomb. We have their sarcophagus or ossuary here. And then you have in 2002, this is probably the most famous and controversial of them. This is called the James Ossuary. It was inscribed with the words, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. And why that's so unusual is because you don't usually go by your brother. You go by your, your parent or you go by your town, but you don't go by your brother unless your brother's super famous. So this isn't just like another Jesus. This is a super famous Jesus who is the brother of James and then the, the father is Joseph of uh, James here. So uh, this caused a huge stir in Israel. There was a seven-year trial against Oded Golan by the Israeli Antiquities Authority. And after the end of seven years of trying to prove that this guy forged it, he was acquitted of all charges. And so the inscription still stands. Then in 2004, they found the Pool of Siloam. There were some guys out working on a broken sewage pipe, and they found a couple of steps leading somewhere, and they were like, what's this? And so there was excavation, and they found the Pool of Siloam. People had said, oh, the Gospel of John just made that up. There's no Pool of Siloam. We would have found it by now. And then in 2004, they found the Pool of Siloam, and they tested some, uh, uh, or they, they found some coins embedded in the plaster that date the pool to the time of Christ. And Jesus told the blind man to go wash. And then there's lots of internal evidence as well, leading us towards the conclusion that the Gospels are reliable. I don't have time to go to all these verses with you. I, I think I put them in your notes. But um, Luke chapter 1, well, I, I can read this. Luke chapter 1, verse 1 says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have the certainty concerning the things you have been taught. I mean, this is not the kind of language that somebody writing a myth uses. How do myths go? Once upon a time, or uh, once, uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Or, you know, I mean, you don't start with, I investigated everything carefully. I found the eyewitnesses. I wrote an orderly account. I'm trying to give you the exact truth of what happened here. Luke thinks Luke is writing history. Luke doesn't think Luke is writing some sort of like theology that's divorced from reality. He says, it seemed good to me, or he says, eyewitnesses and ministers uh, that were delivered to us, he wants to write a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. He's looking to write down what happened. He's not looking to write down just something that's going to make you feel good. So he, he talks about eyewitnesses, writing an orderly account, and having certainty. The scripture from 2 Peter, Peter testifies that he himself was an eyewitness. 
And this is significant because Peter is associated with the gospel of Mark. And so Peter says that he did not follow, this is an exact quote, he did not follow cleverly devised myths. He's like, that's not, that's not what I'm into. Instead, he's an eyewitness of Jesus' majesty. And he says that the prophetic word is more sure and that no prophecy of Scripture uh, comes from an act of human will, but people are moved by the Holy Spirit. And then in John chapter 19, there are a few of these fascinating statements where it says that John bore witness to the soldier piercing Jesus' side. You know, there, he'll, he'll be narrating the crucifixion. He'll say, and the soldier put a spear into his side, and then out of nowhere say, and I was there, and I, and I was a witness of this. And so, even if you didn't believe them, you have to admit that they think they're witnesses. <laughs> they think they're, they're trying to tell the truth, and they're not making this all up. And then later on, at the end of the Gospel of John, it says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Then we have point number 10, the fact of changed lives. I mean, how many countless people have testified to how God has irreversibly saved them from destructiveness as a result of encountering the Jesus of the Gospels? Life after life after life gets transformed by encountering this Jesus, hearing the words that he says, looking at the various things that he did, the, the, the people that Jesus healed and that he is still able to heal in our time. So I think that's a very significant aspect of why we should trust the Gospels. And then last of all, faith in God's inspiration. Ultimately, you have to decide whether or not you're going to trust the Gospels. You have to decide for yourself, is this from God? And I believe it is from God. I think there are, you know, those are my 11 reasons right there. But, you know, I think there is excellent facts pointing in that direction. But God does not coerce people or force them to believe. You know, and I don't think this is a blind leap like, hey, let's just go trust the Gospels. I think it's... It's more, I don't think it's a blind leap of faith into the dark. I think it's, you know, you, you have these different reasons and they go in a certain direction and then you step, you, you have to take the step of faith and say, do I believe this is from God? And I think when you do, it does make sense. So what we're going to do next is we're going to look at the birth of Christ and we're going to then work through his life. We're going to look at his parables, his teachings, his miracles, and also look at the historical setting of what's going on in that time so that when we read the words of Jesus, they come alive for us. If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.